It's a huge pleasure to have Rob Witham of Fine China come to the Antidote for a chat. I really appreciate you taking time to come to the show, Rob. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Right from the start, I should admit that I'm a longtime fan of Fine China. I mean, I first got into your music when I bought your Tooth and Nail release, When the World Sings, and that was back in 2000. But the band had already been around a few years. What about telling us how Fine China first came together? Yeah, um, so we were sort of, you know, of that era in the 90s. All and If you were a kid who was into like playing guitar music, you would just try to find like some friends and put a band together. So that's essentially what happened uh, with us. You know, I had a had a friend uh, who was at, went to church with who played bass and we had a she had a friend who played the drums and I had some songs and we just kind of like went for it and it kind of went from there. Um, we uh, pretty quickly ended up getting a new, a different bass player who's Greg Markov, who's been in the band for pretty much from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. So we were a three piece for a while. It was me and, and Greg Markov, our bass player, and a guy named Danny on drums. And uh, pretty early on, we got connected with Jeff Cloud from Velvet Blue Music um, and uh, and uh, like Jason Martin and Ronnie Martin did a show with those guys and kind of like met everybody and got pulled into VBM off of that. And it was just sort of sort of off to the races after that. We did a couple of uh, EPs for Velvet Blue and then uh, ended up getting on Tooth and Nail through Ronnie, who was kind of working for Tooth and Nail, doing some stuff at the time. So yeah, it all happened kind of kind of quickly and just kind of organically. It sounds like you guys started this as a serious project. Like, it wasn't just for fun. Well, you know, the reason I wanted to have a band is because I, I wanted to write songs. You know, it wasn't just like, it wasn't really just hanging out and jamming. It was definitely like, I wanted to... I wanted to figure out how to write music and, you know, ultimately be able to record stuff. So yeah, it was, it was pretty as serious as you can be when you're like 18 years old about anything. (laughs) But uh, I was on a mission somewhat and wanted to, you know, make a particular kind of music and, uh, you know, needed a band and people to help me play it. And that, yeah, exactly. I'd like to hear about the band's very first release, The Beautiful. I mean, can you imagine that was back in 96? What was it like heading to the studio and putting that first release together? Yeah, so actually The Beautiful was a 7-inch that had a song. The A-side was a song called In the Winter that was actually on our first EP. And then it had a B-side that was a song called I'm Sorry that we just recorded you know, in its own session. So I think actually it wasn't our first. I think the EP, uh, No One Knows, came out first. And I think The Beautiful came out right after that, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway... Um, yeah, we uh, on that seven inch we to do the B side. We got together with uh, Cloud wanted us to work with this guy named Wayne Everett. It was like uh, he was playing drums for Starfire at the time, and I think he was in the Prayer Chain and a bunch of other stuff. So he just wanted to come in and help us produce it. So we just kind of spent a day at this little studio in Riverside and just put out recorded the B side and drove back to Phoenix the next day. That's kind of what we did in those days. We would drive out to uh, to Riverside. Uh, which is where the studio used, uh, was. So we would like do a little, you know, five hour drive from Phoenix out to Riverside, record for a day, and then we would just like drive home. We did that like a bunch of times over the year, the first couple of years. Oh man, talk about road time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it wasn't too bad. I was going to say, like, if you wanted to talk about first release, that would be the No One Knows EP. And so that was recorded at the same studio. It was a studio called Moon Song. There's a guy named Bob Moon. A lot of guys. A lot of tooth and nail bands worked with him at the time and Jason Martin had had him 
do some stuff on his early records for Starflyer. And so we spent a couple of days with Ronnie producing at that studio to do to do No One Knows. And that was kind of our, our really our first time in a studio, you know, to do anything. So we just had no idea what we were doing. And it's very, uh, very simple, very quick in and out. Didn't, didn't spend a lot of time on anything, <laughs> just kind of recorded it and uh, mixed it. And it was done in a couple of days. Well, having Ronnie, you had a music master there guiding you along. Right. Yeah, he was he was always really helpful, really kind to our band. Fine China released a pair of EPs with Velvet Blue, and that was before heading over to Tooth and Nail Records for the Fine China full length When the World Sings. Were you actually looking for that change? Yeah, we were starting to record a, a full length record for Velvet Blue Music. Uh, with Ronnie producing again. And uh, we just, we were having just some issues and it wasn't sounding as great as we wanted it to. And at the time, Ronnie was also doing some A&R work for Tooth and Nail uh, for their little, it was an imprint that he ran called Plastic Music that had kind of more sort of electronic kind of pop bands. Um, and so Ronnie was was running that and he had kind of a really natural like stream you know to pull us over into tooth and nail and we were excited about that for just obvious reasons you know it was a big it had good distribution for records and was just a it was a a larger label and it excited us as kind of like a young band to be able to do that um and so yeah we kind of midstream sort of pulled the plug on that album and then when we signed with tooth and nail we ended up booking a couple of weeks uh, at a different studio in huntington beach called the green room a guy named gene eugene ran that and so we kind of we took yeah, so we, t- we were excited about that, and we took some of the tracks that we had done at the other studio and, and uh, brought those over, and then we also started over on a lot of stuff and brought in some new songs. It was kind of a reboot of what was supposed to have been our first record on Velvet Blue. We just kind of rebooted everything, and uh, that's what became When the World Sings. Well, you guys had a hit with the lead single, We Rock Harder Than You Ever Knew. <laughs> so I'm going to condense the lyrics a little bit here. Where is the gentleness and hope of the Lord in all these men who compose violence? And now we all hope that you will sing with us now, because we think you will like that. That song actually makes it sound like you're describing your mission as a band. Maybe so. Yeah, I don't know. We were never really a band on a mission like that. I think we just really were about the music. However, we had, especially in our early younger days, kind of a I don't know what you want to call it, kind of a rebellious punk spirit, even though we weren't playing like, you know, punk rock. We sort of <laughs> felt like we were kind of, you know, when you're when you're sort of a reactionary kind of bad doing something different, we kind of reveled in that. And we we would go to like we play a lot of Christian festivals and stuff. And it just felt like everybody else was doing like hardcore rap rock. And we were kind of like fed up with it and wanted to kind of get our digs in a little bit at it. That was all that was. Um, we just uh probably was like born out of youthful arrogance too, just thinking we were better than everybody else, even though we weren't, but we kind of hated the whole hardcore rap rock scene that was happening around us at that time. I wanted to kind of like be different from that. Well, you certainly were that. Right. The interesting thing about the nineties is when you guys started, that's when bands could try almost anything and draw in an audience. Yeah, that's true. Especially in the Christian market, there was, you know, something for everybody sort of. Now, in those early days, did you really know what you wanted Fine China to be? Like, what kind of an impact you wanted to make? The kind of message or the kind of sound? I knew, yeah, in some ways. Oh, I knew that I wanted to and 
was just scratching the surface on how to write, you know, kind of traditional pop songs that had a really strong kind of melodic content, a sad and melancholy. Like I always knew from the beginning that that was the kind of songs I wanted to write. Pretty early on, I kind of like latched onto the, as far as like our aesthetic being sort of an 80s influenced aesthetic. So we were using a lot of the same sounds that you would have found in like British kind of new wave and post-punk bands from the early 80s. So like the kind of guitar sounds we were getting and using, you know, synthesizers with strings. And we, we knew that pretty early on that that was going to be the template. And we're still pretty much using that to this day. And that was really it. And, and it really, for me, it was just a dedication to being a songwriter and wanting to really focus on that um, as opposed to, you know, our band's image or any of the other number of kind of dumb things that bands get fixated on. For me, it was just about wanting to write and record, you know, the best music that I could. And that, that's still kind of our focus to this day. Then were you actually doing this for an audience or were you doing this for yourself? Um, I've never really loved playing live shows. So for me, yeah, primarily it was like, I just loved being in my recording stuff on my four track and writing. Um, so yeah, it really was never, it was never born out of a place of like, yeah, wanting to play for everybody. And you know, that's fine. A lot of other bands are more into that. We never really were. We were never really a good live band. Uh, we never really spent that much time worrying about that. We were kind of more about the, the artistic and the, the music element of it. And then you sort of have to play shows though. So mm -hmm. we would do that. We had some, we had fun with it, but it was never really our focus. You realize how much you're dating yourself saying a four track. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yep. We uh, had a four track and used it a lot. Now in 2002 saw the release of you make me hate music. And that really is a sad album. So I'm going to throw in a few of the lyrics. Hug Every Friend says, I know I'm a fool. I made a mess of everything I do. Rock Can't Last Forever brings in the line, Everybody needs to learn to get over it. You Were a Saint says, Come on, come on, I'm sick of talking like a desperate man. I've done all I can. And now here's a final one. You Ain't Happy says, Happy wasn't how you wanted to spend your life. You're the songwriter, so you've got to sum up that album. Was it you who was unhappy? Yeah, sort of. I mean, it was kind of kind of what I mentioned earlier. Again, like the scene that we were in, kind of finding it to be kind of a, an irritating thing. And uh, But again, I, in retrospect, some of it was kind of self-effacing too. It was kind of like, it was sort of feeling like, you know, every, you make such a big deal out of this, these kind of rock songs that you're recording, and it just seems like so important. But if you kind of step back from it, the whole thing is kind of kind of absurd. So it was kind of wrestling with that, both the, the seriousness that we wanted to take it with and to be really good and to succeed, but also realizing, like, man, you can kind of lose the plot a little bit. Like, this whole thing is kind of, kind of a joke in a way, too. So was, there was some tension, you know, for me trying to figure out how to navigate some of that stuff. Why don't we stay on that happy, unhappy theme? How did you feel having that as your final tooth and nail release? Yeah, it was it was not unexpected. Um, we had originally signed a three album deal with Tooth and Nail, but um, they had the option, you know, to renew that or not after every album. And we knew like we were not selling a lot of records. That they were definitely doing us a huge favor um, by keeping us on the label. And you know, I think they liked the band and they. They liked what we were doing, but at the end of the day, you know, I think us and some of the other weirder bands on the label just 
weren't able to keep up with kind of what what needed to happen sales wise and touring wise for being on a label of that size. So we weren't we weren't surprised at all when they let us go. It was not a big deal. We never had any animosity about it. We I just always felt like it was crazy that we we're actually able to put a couple of records out on Tooth and Nail just with how small and obscure of a band that we were. I just felt like that I was really grateful for the two records that we got. And so yeah, that was kind of how I felt about it. I guess realistically, your music really was aimed at a bit of a niche market. Yeah, it kind of was, I suppose. It just was like there was a small subsection of people who followed Tooth & Nail who would have been interested in what we were doing. And that was always fine with us. You know, we weren't really too concerned about that part of it. What were you concerned about then? It was just the quality of the music itself. Yeah, we were really, we were like a band that's about the music, so... And every band probably kind of says that same thing. But for us, that was really like, you know, writing it, recording, getting together and like working out our arrangements. Like we loved that part of it. We loved kind of the aesthetic kind of working of our sound. It was kind of almost like you look at it like an art project, you know, more than a performance project. We loved the art aspect of it. That's so cool. So then in 2005, you moved on to a micro label, I guess, effectively for the Jaws of Life. That was a really strong album. I think My Worst Nightmare might have been its most popular song. But for me personally, I think the standout was Prosecute Electrocute. It begins as this sweet love song, but then it takes on a twist. Do you want to explain? Wow, yeah, I haven't really thought about that song in a long time. Uh, I don't really... I don't remember. Um, (laughs) I don't really remember what was going on with that one. Yeah, so for me, like, the lyrical content of songs is always, like, very much secondary to uh, the music itself, even just in terms of the order of operations for when I'm writing stuff. So what what happens is, like, I'll have sometimes a song title or, you know, maybe I'll have a phrase, you know, for the chorus or something. And then when I'm writing and doing, like, demoing, I'll kind of just, like, put down a bunch of stuff that doesn't make any sense but allows me to kind of hash out the melody and then what happens is like the night before I go in or whatever, two nights before I got to actually record vocals, I'll have to figure out what the lyrics are going to be. And I always hate that. <laughs> I, I hate doing that. But what happens is you sort of end up, it's like playing connect the dots or something. You're kind of like connecting these dots and like maybe, maybe then like 80% of it kind of makes some sense. And sometimes you stumble upon things that are interesting and other times you don't. So I never pretended to be like a, you know, a poet and a lyricist at all, but sometimes fun things can happen. That's why I had to talk to you, because I never would have thought about that. Yeah. Well, of course, there's a few things that make Fine China song lyrics stand out. One is that the songs often have these provocative titles that don't necessarily connect with the lyrics. Yeah. My second thought is that the lyrics flip from being obvious to being cryptic. But I do think that the most important point is that they all seem to be personal. (laughs) Sorry, I guess that's kind of covering Mm -hmm. a lot of ground. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts? Yeah, like, I've always loved song titles that are kind of larger than life. So, like, I love the Smiths and Morrissey's kind of approach to that. And then I always liked New Order. Like, New Order often would have song titles that had nothing to do with anything. They were just a great title. And I always liked that, like, Bizarre Love Triangle, you know, or, like, whatever. Uh, some of their, the perfect kiss, you know, these they're just these really elegant 
interesting titles that didn't really tell you anything about what the song was about, but I kind of always liked that. So I, I was never really scared to do that. Um, and then, yeah, like when you're writing lyrics the way I do, yes, it's going to come in and out of focus. I don't know why, but yeah, I tend to write things a lot of times in the first person um, and sort of dwell in that mode. I honestly don't know why it was not an intentional thing. It just kind of happened that way. You figure out how to do something. You, I sort of taught myself and listened to stuff that I liked and figured it out. And then you get into habits that just stay with you for good or ill for your whole life. It seems to be natural to have Morrissey influence you. Right. Yeah, for sure. Probably, again, more more melodically, the way that he structures his melodies and kind of the sadness that he just always achieves that. That was always a really big instructive element for me in, in how to sing and how to write vocal melodies. He was uh, definitely part of the template, for sure. Well, you mentioned about sad, and I've brought that up too. But you'd never refer to Fine China as an emo band. No, I don't think we ever did, just because... I think what people thought of as an emo band sounded a lot different from what we sounded like, you know, in terms of the guitars and stuff. But emo kind of more meant, at least in the 90s or 2000s, more a sound than it did that you had like an emotional lyric or something. True enough. So after the Jaws of Life, Rob, you put up a post on the band's website saying, after nine years of being and doing fine China, the day has come to call it quits. We are burnt out. We are tired. We are ready to move on to the next stage in our lives. <laughs> but I guess you guys must have healed because 12 years later, you came back to record the Not Thrilled album. Why did you want to jump back into the music game? That's a good question. Um, so I had done, after we disbanded Fight, Fine China, I had continued to do some music. Um, I had a, I did a project with Ronnie Martin from Joy Electric called The Fox Glove Hunt, which kind of maybe was like, 2007 to 2009 maybe or something we did a, a an album and a little ep single thing so i was i was kind of continuing it's not like i just stopped doing music but definitely not at the same kind of level and intensity as before but i don't know sometime in like 2016 maybe or seven probably 2000 well no i actually would trace it somewhat back to 2015 we had had a we did a reunion show around the 10-year anniversary of the Jaws of Life release in 2015. Our, the label that we put that out on kind of had that idea and uh, suggested that we do it. And we were like, yeah, that sounds fun. So we got together and rehearsed a bunch, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, prepared for that. And it was a really fun, good show. So I had, I had kind of started to think, okay, maybe, maybe we could do another record. And uh, we had just moved into a new house, my wife and I and our kids, and it actually had a space for a studio which I'd never really had before mm. had a, like a guest, like a guest house space. And so I was just kind of starting to get into doing some of my own recording and kind of figuring out how to track at home and stuff that coupled with just doing that reunion show, I think made me realize, okay, I could probably do this and take my time. You know, we didn't really have the luxury of paying a bunch of money to go back into a studio because we didn't have a label you know, that we were working with. And so it made sense at that time. Cause I actually could think about maybe trying to record it at home. And uh, that's just kind of how it started. It started with just a bunch of demos and different songs, and it just kind of started to take shape like records often do. And, uh, you know, I worked on it for probably a year, just in bits and pieces, you know, a little bit almost every day of the week, going in there early in the morning or late at night and just piecing things together. And mm. lo and behold, we had a record at some point, and we, 
I decided to talk to Jeff Cloud of Velvet Blue Music and see if he was interested in putting it out since we never got to actually put out our full length with him, you know, years and years earlier. And he was really excited about it. And so he kind of got behind it. And that that always helps me to know it's going to come out and there's a little bit of a deadline and a, and some some dollars riding on getting it done. So that helped get me over the finish line and make sure that I actually finished all the songs and the recording and kind of went from there. Not Thrilled had a brilliant opener called Anybody Else. What was it with that? You wanted to start the new album off with a bang? Yep. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't. that was maybe one of the earlier ones that I had started to write and demo out. And uh, what I always try to do with a track one on an album is try to find a track that kind of tells you what's happening. Mm-hmm. So, like, to me, a good first track is like, okay, this is what they're, they're doing on this record. You know, you kind of, you hear it. Uh, the first time and it kind of gives you a little glimpse and so i felt like that song kind of did that it it told you what the sound template was going to be it had like a ridiculous guitar solo on it it had like you know all it had some ambience maybe that was different from what we had had before uh, but also was kind of a classic fine china song so yeah it just felt like a really perfect like track one to me something else about not thrilled is that it has a song that i haven't figured out it speaks of searching for a deeper faith, but I was curious as to why you titled the song The Hymnal 1982. Well, The Hymnal 1982 is actually a hymnal uh, that at a church I used to go to, we had that thing. So it was actually, if you, you know, you're sitting in the pew and the hymnal and the little hymnal holder in front of you says on it, The Hymnal 1982, and I always thought it was just like the coolest hymnal title ever. And I, I just love looking at it. And uh, so I, I had that in my back pocket for years as a song title. And uh, yeah, th- then the song, it's just kind of like attached itself to that song, um, which is probably more more of a real song for me. You know, it, it is getting into some stuff about my childhood. And if it seemed to make sense, you know, remembering seeing that hymnal and like even the year was probably, you know, a, a year in my childhood. So, yeah, I don't know. It, the title attached itself to the song and it just made sense. I have to say that there is one constant with Fine China. The band seems to enjoy changing its style. You know, it's never overt, but it does happen. Is this evolution or intentional? Well, it's, yeah, it's intentional. I think that's probably been more pronounced in the last few years with some of the weirder kind of instrumental stuff that I've done. I kind of got to a point where I, I used to really labor to make sure things fit really well into the template of like fine China, you know, cause mm-hmm. I love bands that are, I've always loved bands that are really consistent, you know, in their sound and they don't really, they don't evolve, but they kind of progress within what they are. I always loved that. Like there's a lot of bands that do that really well. Um, but I also got to a point where I just wanted to find out what would happen if I just literally removed the filter and was like, I'm just going to do some stuff that's really different and uh, just like follow it and not worry about it and then just put it out. <laughs> and so that's kind of what the Trees at Night single that had a couple instrumentals and then the, the recent um, Eyes, at, Eyes in the Water was kind of the same thing, just kind of taking off the filter. It still sounds very much like stuff that I write, you know, and it's definitely infused by that, but it's very, it's very different and I wanted to allow it to be, uh, to be different and just see what would happen. Did any of those changes come about because of some of the producers Fine China has had? As you've already mentioned, you've had both Jason Martin of Starflyer 59 and Ronnie Martin of Joy Electric as producers on different albums. Mm -hmm. And you can hear their own music styles coming into your songs. 
you were okay with that. Yeah, especially in the early days of the band, when somebody that you really like and look up to, you know, wants to produce you, the last thing you're going to do when you're like a 19 year old is like argue with them. <laughs> you're just like, <laughs> you're just excited that they want to work with you. And so that definitely with Ronnie, you know, he had a pretty big mark on when the world sings and we were fine with that. Uh, we liked working with him and we liked that part of his sound was kind of part of us there. It didn't bother us, you know, and then we were, when we recorded the next album with Jason, we, we knew that we wanted to not do an electronic record. We knew that we wanted this to sound like the band sounded live and be much more of a guitar record. And Jason obviously is, that's more his kind of approach to his music. So that made a lot of sense, but you get some of his sound in there as well. But when we, when we did the Jaws of Life, that was the first time that we had ever just produced it kind of ourselves. And so that's when I think you start to hear what our band actually sounds like, mm -hmm. um, you know, without kind of the colorization of somebody else on it. And that just has kind of continued as uh, I've been more directly involved in the actual production on everything since that point. It's just, it sounds more like fine China. And then, you know, I've allowed it to kind of go in some weird places just because, I don't know, you get old and bored with stuff and want to see what will happen. So <laughs> you mentioned a little bit earlier about Fine China coming back into Velvet Blue music. The thing is, with the latest releases through them, you got a big change coming out, which is instrumentals. What kind of a story are the songs telling? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, so the Trees at Night one, I had started to write around. I don't know, 2019, 2020, some weird instrumental stuff. And I just had a bunch of them like on my computer that I didn't know what to do with. And that was when I kind of hatched the idea. Okay. What if I did a, a race, like a single that had, that was really long that had like an A side with a kind of more of a regular song, but still the song kind of tells you, Hey, something else is going on here. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of really just like wacko, like new age kind of jams. And then, then I had this idea for just doing like a 14 minute long, just song that was kind of almost like watching a movie or something. And I worked on that thing forever. Who knows if it even came out good. Um, but, uh, I was, I was excited about it. I was excited about just to try something new and just to see what would happen. Even I kind of figured what would happen, which I think is what's happened. You kind of try something like that and then you pull back after kind of more of what you've done before, but that you're never really the same after that either. You're kind of, you've become something different and more than what you used to be, but you're still back to who you were. So that's kind of what I thought would happen and, and hoped that by expanding our sound a little bit, we would kind of snap back, but be better. So who knows if that happened, but I'm hoping it did. Probably the most unusual thing about the trees at 90p is that you share audio samples from nature. Where did you get that idea? Well, I'm not the first one to do it. There, I listened to a lot of albums when I was a kid that my parents had like records of these kind of weird new age albums. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the first time that I heard, I heard like recordings that had like, you know, crickets or like, you know, whatever rain. And I always liked it as a kid for, I don't know why I was always drawn to it. It always just was like, it was something that I liked. And, uh, I had never really thought about doing it just until I started kind of writing these instrumentals. And I just sort of naturally thought that would make sense to maybe bring some of these ambient like nature sounds in. And so I just started messing with it and recording some of my own sounds and finding some clips and then, you know, modifying them and kind of going down that rabbit hole and uh, just started attaching them to songs. And I kind of liked it. Okay. You were telling me about your parents. How did they feel about your music? 
Oh, they were always super supportive. They, uh, especially my mom. My mom was a musician and uh, always sort of required that I do music as a kid. You know, it was just like a foregone conclusion that you would play something and you would take lessons and you'd be involved in music. And then she was always super supportive of whatever I did musically just because she, she loved music. So, yeah, it was always... So I something that was encouraged and my parents were always really kind about my records. They probably didn't like some of it and, and were and lied to me and said they did, but that's what parents are supposed to do. Right. Well, they had to like the crickets on your song because well, they revealed that to you. Unfortunately, both of my parents passed before they could hear the crickets. So they never got to hear that part. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. Last fall, fine China released its latest eyes in the water. I've seen it described as mesmerizing and dreamy, and I really do think that's pretty accurate. I mean, a few of the album's instrumentals, like Maybe, Maybe Not, could even help send you to sleep. Yeah, yeah, and that's fine. Sometimes uh, I like to fall asleep to stuff like that, so I wanted to try to do something that was more immersive, something that would pull you in, that you could kind of live in and and uh, evaporate in a little bit, which is different from pop music where you're kind of more engaged in it and it's driving you ahead and giving you energy. I kind of want to do the opposite of that for a little bit and then maybe mix it together a, l- a little bit too. Like, like pop music that has a really, really strong ambient side to it, which you don't really find a whole lot. Usually bands kind of go one way or another. Yeah. Good point. Here's a final song to ask about. And then I'm going to let you get back to actually having a day to yourself. Hey, no, that's good. The title track, Eyes in the Water, the lyrics say, Heart was failing, I was praying for a way to weather this one out, to shelter underneath some cover. Now, I know you say sometimes the lyrics are just a last-minute thing, but how about for you personally, Rob? How do you weather the storms? Well, there's always... Yeah, the older you get and you have a family and children and a, and a job, like when you hit middle age, things kind of get a little bit more real uh, than they maybe have in the past. At least they did for me in terms of like stress and anxiety. And a lot of that in probably the last 10 years of my life have had some pretty difficult circumstances and things that have happened that have that have felt a lot like trying to weather a storm. And so, yeah, I mean, part of the way we do that as people is like finding places to go. And for me, like music and writing music is a big one of those. It kind of helps me like work stuff out and you know, it's not an intentional thing, but just doing music, going into my studio, you know, working on my tracks every day really helps me a lot. And so I just try to do that as much as I can because it's uh, it's good for my soul. And here I am creating more stress for you by having you have to talk to me all this time. Oh no, you're, you're good, man. No, you're good. So Fine China burnt out years ago. Are you going to promise me that that's not going to happen again? No, not really. We pop up and then we go away for a little bit and we might pop up again. We should have a new album coming out late this year, I hope. We have a a bunch of songs that I'm working on, so we're not dead yet. (laughs) That's sweet. I got to thank you for this talk, Rob. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Dave.